The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Adam Gordon-Bell. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. For our audience that don't know, Adam hosts a similar podcast called Co-Recursive. For our audience that may not have heard it yet, and for those who have, maybe Adam, can you give your own synopsis of the, the subject matter that you cover in Co-Recursive? Yeah, so Co-Recursive is a software development podcast where I do an interview on like, each interview would be on a, on a piece of technology, a, a topic, and I would get an expert and kind of have them explain to me how that works and kind of, you know, we're not afraid to get in the weeds of the specifics. Uh, and uh, it's a great, it's great for me to be able to learn uh, from these experts. And I, I hope that, you know, the people who listen to it get to kind of learn along with me. And in Adam's day job, Adam is a team lead of several uh, products at Tenable, the international software security uh, company. For our audience that are curious about the kinds of subject matter that you deal with in your day-to-day -day role, uh, what types of technologies are you using on the job? Um, yeah, so I work on application security, which is like, you know, securing applications as opposed to like network security that is more like firewalls and stuff. Uh, the product I work uh, the most on is container security. So what we do is scan um, Docker images, we, we kind of analyze them statically, uh, looking for software vulnerabilities so that we can, you know, tell somebody like, hey, you know, this new library you upgraded to in Python actually has a network facing vulnerability. So maybe you don't want to ship that, uh, that, that type of thing. This is super contemporaneous. <laughs> uh, what, what was the news event that happened a couple of weeks ago that, that, uh, illuminated for the world just how insecure public Docker images are. Yeah, there was an Alpine. Uh, so Alpine, I don't know if this is the one you're thinking of, but the, there is an Alpine uh, Linux distribution that's commonly used for containers because it's it's very small and very stripped down, very nice. And there was a vulnerability where you could have a you could use a null password to to run as root, and it was like very wide sweeping. Uh, covered a, a ton of versions. Like when we added, so when when this news came out, we obviously had to quickly add a, a check for it, and that just kind of you know lit up the board for a lot of customers to say like, you know, you need to fix this. Yeah, Docker adoption has been huge. I mean, in my previous few roles, it's so I, I can I can kind of pinpoint the turning point in popularity and actual adoption, but the way I've seen it often adopted is starting in development, then running it in testing environments and staging environments, and then rolling it out in production. And as far as where previous employers of mine are at in that timeline, uh, they're at varying points, but uh, <laughs> one of the hot topics and, and certainly security is, uh, is top of mind in this environment, but running Docker on your laptop is a really popular use case. So starting with Docker, people try it out on their laptops. Uh, what is, what's your take on, on using Docker for local development? Yeah, so, I mean, it depends exactly what you're doing. Um, this is something that, that my team has, has tried various approaches. Like, I think you're right that Docker became popular kind of bottoms up because if you wanted to try out um, a piece of software, if you wanted to, to try out some new database, like they might just have a, a Docker image, you could pull it down and start playing around with it. Um, and, and I think that's great. 
um, a great use of Docker to do that. I think the place where it gets more challenging is if you're developing an application and you want to develop it inside of a Docker container on your local environment, um, the, the development cycle, I mean, it depends. If you're, if you're on a Linux computer, the overhead of Docker is very small. But uh, on my team, like I'm rocking a MacBook Pro here, and most people on my team are. And the same on Windows, there's, there's like a, a VM kind of hidden from you that Docker runs inside of. And so if you're, you know, trying to do like hot code reloading or incremental compiling, and every time you save, it needs to kind of sync over to this Docker image um, where all your dependencies live. I, I think that that can be uh, just a painful process. So I, I, we have tried that various ways on my team, and I don't think Docker is quite there to actually develop inside of a container if you're not in a Linux environment. And to step back for a moment for audience members that might have question marks floating around their heads about what exactly would you even need Docker for in the first place on your MacBook, which is already a very powerful machine. It runs a Linux-like operating system. Why, why use Docker at all? It's this issue of having an environment in your development that mirrors what might be running in production. And the more you can minimize the delta between those two environments, the more realistic your development will be and the more likely you'll catch problems before they occur in production. Or if problems are occurring in production, you can reproduce them more accurately on your laptop, for example. But predating uh, Docker, you were mentioning VMs. For audience, for audience that may never have touched a, a VM before or, or not, at least knowingly, uh, what, what's a VM and what's the distinction there between uh, a VM and Docker? Yeah, so a, a VM is a virtual machine, and I think that um, there are some similarities. Uh, a VM runs uh, an entire stack of. Uh, now I'm not. If I get things wrong, you know, you know, uh, call me out. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> for sure, no, we're we're quickly wading into territory <laughs> that both of us are are experienced enough to know that this is a deep, deep pool <laughs> so a for sure yeah so write your letters uh i'll give you my address uh your complaint letters <laughs> so uh, a vm uh, basically is, is a virtual machine so you will run in software um, an entire uh, operating system and there is a uh, hardware support for that to to make that a little bit faster um but it's still a quite a heavyweight concept and i, I have like as you were saying to match your your actual deployment environment, you know, in the past I have had, like I'm running on a MacBook and I run my Linux uh, VM. Um, now Docker's, um, the, the Docker, the way Docker improves on this is that rather than running an entire operating system, they give you an experience similar to that, but you're actually only, uh, you're actually sharing the kernel. So the actual operating system uh, kernel is shared. Uh, Docker is originally designed for Linux, and that means that to run, uh, I think there are Windows containers now, but I'm less familiar with it. But to run a um, to run a Linux container on your local MacBook, the way Docker kind of magically makes that work is they do have a VM. So there is a, a hidden VM on your machine that's running some sort of Docker Linux, and then every uh, container that you start up shares that kernel. So uh, in that local development environment, it's still better than VMs because if you're running five different 
containers, they're, they're only sharing one kernel, but there is still the overhead of having this virtual machine. And if you're in, if you're actually, if your host machine is Linux, then the overhead is, is basically, you know, almost nothing. So yeah, when you, when you install Docker for Mac or Docker for Windows, you're running Docker on top of Linux on top of Mac. Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite Docker on top of Mac. So yeah, people, people earlier in the days that preceded Docker, the company creating these operating system specific uh, installs of Docker, there were some awful tools that existed that do uh, more explicitly <laughs> what Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows do now, which is that you would actually have to use the command line to boot up a VM. And then you'd need to uh, interact with that VM and the Docker server running within the VM on your laptop uh, from your command line. And it was it was a mess. And we've come a long way thanks to Docker being a well-financed uh, startup. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I, that, this is, uh, these are heady times because, you know, Docker is taking the world by storm in a lot of businesses where the business use case is a lot more clear than maybe the local development use case. Um, like we were alluding to earlier, reproducing problems that are existing in production is a lot harder when you're, you know, you can, you, you can say that it works on your laptop, but uh, <laughs> if it doesn't work in production, you know, you're endangering your business's revenues, people's jobs, uh, customers' jobs. So yeah, I, you, the, the use case for Docker, I think definitely should resonate in our audience's noggins. <laughs> yeah, and the, the metaphorical explanation for, for Docker containers, I think uh, is quite nice. So it, it just comes from this idea of shipping containers. So, you know, a shipping container was kind of a great innovation in the world of shipping because instead of loading all these things on boats, they had like a standard size package that they put things in. It was easier to move things around. And you can see where this metaphor can apply because if I'm running inside of this container on my local machine and then that same container is moved to production, um, it kind of gives you uh, first ease of moving it around, right? You don't have this issue of like, oh, my software requires like X installed on the server. And then, you know, also it's just, it's packaged up in a nice immutable box. For sure, for sure. I think one of the the things we should highlight about Adam as a, as a guest is that Adam works from Canada as a full-time employee of a U.S. business uh, outside of Toronto. And one of the topics that I'd love to cover with you, Adam, is about how you handle full-time remoteness and being a manager of employees who are also full-time remote. Uh, I know this is a topic that's come up on your podcast. Uh, you've talked about it on other podcasts where you've been a guest, but I'm interested to hear from you kind of what are the, the tactics both of maybe recruiting, maybe of um, uh, finding a job as a full-time remote, uh, and maybe also uh, managing once you are a manager of full-time remote employees. So for audience that are curious, what's, what's being full-time remote like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, so I, the, uh, I have been remote at a couple companies now. Um, I do live in a, in a smaller place and my background story is that, uh, you know, I was working for a software company and, um, my boss at the time who I really liked went to work somewhere else and he tried to recruit me to go work there, but it was, I didn't want to move. So he said, Hey, well, 
let's try doing it remote. And so I started working at that time from, you know, my home, my apartment that, that me and my now wife share. And I think it was about a week in when I was just like, you know, banging out code and had some music on. And, you know, at that time, we actually used a conference call to uh, communicate uh, as a team. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, this is this is great. Like, I don't think I'll go back to being in the office. Uh, so <laughs> I think to, to say what it's like to be remote, I think it depends on your personality. Um, but I really enjoy uh, the, the autonomy I get out of it. I think there are trade-offs uh, for sure. And it may not be a fit for everybody, but, but I think it's great. Fair enough, fair enough. So on the topic of interacting with people remotely, uh, what are some of the conditions you can control about uh, how you can maintain optimal communication with your coworkers or people that report to you? Because I, I was just in a meeting today <laughs> where people were discussing, you know, how to improve communication between teams and people were saying, you know, just come up to me at my desk and that's just not possible in full-time remote. And, and it's, it's odd that that's a proposed solution, but how, how, what is, what is the metaphor for, for approaching somebody at their desk when you're full-time remote? Yeah. So for me, it's, it's uh, Slack um, or, you know, pick your, your chat app of choice. But I think that, you know, you hit on an important idea, which is like a cultural aspect of being remote. So I think that right now I work on like a distributed team as opposed to um, like my first story of just being a remote guy on a team. Um, that, that could be a challenge, but, but now I work in an environment where we have people on my team who are all over the place. So, um, we all have to kind of embrace this asynchronous, uh, nature. And I think that if the expect, if the expectation is that, you know, people will reach out to each other, you know, using Slack or, or using video chat, um, you know, it becomes less of an issue. So it, it's hard to just be the one remote person. I think you need to have uh, uh, a team that embraces it. I guess given the choice as somebody who's evaluating between two employers, should you prefer an employer that is totally distributed versus one that's only partially distributed? If you're going to be uh, distributed, I mean, you kind of answered the question yourself, but let's say you have the option to be in person for the partially distributed company. Should you... I guess prioritize an employer who you can be in person with over one that's full-time remote or there's, I realize there's so many factors here, but maybe hearing about your thought process about weighing uh, companies that have partially distributed teams versus fully distributed teams would be helpful for audience that are thinking about that transition themselves. Yeah. So like there is no um, like provided posh lunches for me. Uh, <laughs> At my home, so there's a there's a consideration, right? I was talking to somebody who was having ribs for lunch at their, uh, you know, public company of choice employer, um, and and I was, you know, eating some sort of microwave meal. So you know, weigh that. Uh, but I think, <laughs> you know, I I would encourage everybody, like, if you are um, talented, and and let's assume that you are, because I think we all are in, in our own unique way. I think that's something people should try is to work on a distributed team. Um, it may not be for you. Uh, you may find out, uh, but I, I think it's great. 
Um, and I think that there is a certain forcing function to, to figuring out how to communicate distributed in a distributed fashion that can, that can be really valuable. Um, I won't say like, like, I think there's trade-offs either way. Right. Um, like I wouldn't say that being in person or, or being remote, like one is better than the other. I think that they're different. Um, you know, and I can think about like how far away would my job need to be? Uh, like how close would it have to be where I would prefer going there than being at my home office? And right now I would have to say it's pretty close. Like if it was like a 10 minute walk away, like I think that I would, I'd be more apt to go there, but, but, uh, I just, you know, I have my own office. I can set things up. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's something everybody should try. I, I agree. I, I think one of the awesome, I maybe awesome might be a, too strong a word to use, but one of the interesting side effects of full-time remote is that all of your communications and interactions with coworkers has an audit log. And yeah. maybe you don't record all of the video conferencing you do per se, but uh, because you use Slack so much for communication versus maybe going up and physically interrupting somebody at their desk, you do have an audit log of, you know, what did I do all day yesterday? You can scroll through Slack. You can scroll through uh, your Git host of choice. You can scroll through your email. Um, you can scroll through the logs. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's you, in some ways you, uh, are creating a, a better paper trail of, uh, how you spend your days that even, even if, uh, your employer doesn't micromanage, at least you can go and look back at it perhaps more easily when you're at standup the next morning. than if you know, you're doing your, all your work, uh, verbally in person. So. That's an interesting side effect that I thought might be worth mentioning. Uh, yeah. One one that you mentioned about how do you unite people who are in a distributed team that I found interesting is is uh, crisis management. How how does crisis management when people work when people are fully remote? Yeah, so um, for us, you know, we kind of we maintain some some applications that are part of a greater you know microservice architecture. Our team kind of is on pager duty, people having different, you know, times when they're um, on alert. But, you know, we all kind of come together when an issue happens. So, I mean, I think I was saying it kind of jokingly uh, when you're pre-interviewing me asking where the camaraderie comes from. But certainly when things blow up and uh, everybody has to get on a video uh, call and uh, work on it, like I think that can bring together like uh, there's a sense of camaraderie there. I think that that's sure. why like in any given company, like, uh, like the DevOps people always know each other the best, right? Cause I think that they've lived through the most, uh, or the SREs they've lived through the most like horrible, uh, emergencies. For sure. For sure. I mean, I, I definitely can imagine that the run books for how to handle, uh, production incidents are, are better documented on fully distributed teams than, uh, perhaps yeah. in person ones. Uh, yeah. speaking, speaking of it, I mean, how much of a, how much of a expectation setting do you have to do as a full-time remote around your hours? Like you mentioned being on call, using pager duty, uh, how do you manage rotations for a fully distributed team? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that the on-call rotation is, is particularly a problem. Um, but, but I think the one aspect I'd like to call out. Uh, maybe is 
is um, I think that if you're working from from your home office, um, I think that people might worry about you slacking off, but I think a, a more pernicious trend, right, is just that you can never leave your job behind. Um, so, you know, it's great to be on call, but, and I think that, that Slack may, may cause this regardless of whether you're remote or not, just people are always uh, talking or, or reaching out. And uh, I think that's challenging, right? You have to, you have to define what a work-life uh, relationship means for you, right? Maybe, maybe you like to blend things. Uh, maybe you need to draw some hard limits so that your, your life and your work don't just blend together. Um, I think that's a challenging question. Like, I don't even, I'm not even sure it's distributed. How, how do you handle that? That's a, that's a good one. Uh, you know, like <laughs> to answer very directly, which I'm not sure I should, is that <laughs> depending on the employer, there's different expectations around uh, uh, SLA service level agreements about how, mm-hmm. what your uptime of your various web services should be. Uh, and with those come how, uh, important and how distressful, or maybe how much money is on the line when your services are down. So I don't want to speak super specifically about my current employer and, and, uh, what those responsibilities are and how we manage them. But I will say that, uh, they're important, <laughs> um, I th- you know, from all, all of the previous roles I've held as a backend engineer, uh, it really depends on the business and it really depends on how much, how much money is on the line. Because if you go to a company like Google that prints, you know, million, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a day, um, they, they have a budget that eclipses most any other businesses desire to compensate people to be on call and be uh, equipped to deal with on callness, so it's such it's such a range. And yeah, I, I agree with you that it doesn't matter so much whether the SRE team is in person or remote. It's just um, how much money is on the line and how you know how uh, incented are people to. Uh, the call to arms <laughs> yeah. to either you know uphold the SLA. Uh, be familiar with the systems that they're in charge of being on call for, um, how equipped people are to get a hold of maybe the guilty party. And guilt is the wrong word. I, this is a, that's a controversial one about where, where blame lies when there are production incidents and, and should people be blamed for you know, taking longer than you think they should for, for addressing on-call problems. So um, I realize I didn't answer your question at all. But I do agree with you that uh, on-call is important. <laughs> and uh, I, I do agree with you about it being uh, reasonable that fully distributed teams can be really well equipped to handle uh, production incidents. Uh, it's really cool to, to the point about uh, having an audit log, being a fully distributed team, it's really cool to be able to scroll through and see the timestamps of the instant messages where people, you know, first realized that there was a production incident impacting customers or internal customers and whatnot. So yeah, all of the instrumentation that comes with being a distributed team really benefits uh, incident response and that sort of thing. So um, do you, do you have any war stories that we can perhaps talk about with details redacted if need be? (laughs) 
Um, I don't, I can tell you like, so we use this tool called blameless, uh, which is really nice. Uh, it integrates into Slack and then basically somebody can declare an incident. Um, and then once that happens, like, I think yeah, there's, there's all kinds of rituals around it. I think they become the incident commander and then they kind of have to pull people in and, you know, for, we have, a Slack channels for various products. So if something's wrong with X, um, you can go into that channel and there's like a, a way that you can kind of notify the person and then they might get paged uh, as well as just monitoring and stuff that pages people. Um, I'm not sure that there's any specific incidents that I really want to share, but I think that, you know, even if, even if something happens and it turns out to be very minor and there's like no customer impact at all, right? Just like a faulty metric going on. Um, you know, there's always, I just like the sense of like, we're all here. Um, we're all here to pitch in, right? Like, you know, I'll help wherever I can, like wherever I'm needed. It's, it's kind of a, can bring the team together. For sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. So barring any other advice that you might have for people who might be starting their first full-time remote job, uh, do we, do we leave anything out? Uh, do you have any, any wisdom to impart upon our audience that might be about to embark on a full-time remote position? Yeah. Like, so I think that if you're working full-time remote, you should get together, uh, like at some, you know, interval with your team, you know, like maybe you get together twice a year, uh, I don't know, do some planning or something, but, but I mean, maybe even the planning is not the important part as much as just the, you know, having some of that that FaceTime. Um, I'm trying to think what else we like, uh, our, our company, you know, there's people in a number of places. So we have this, uh, we have this coffee time Slack, uh, app that's kind of neat, um, where it kind of just pairs random people up together and says, Hey, you two should meet. And then you just kind of set up a time and do like a video chat with them. Um, so that, that's a neat way to kind of socialize, um, you know, even within offices, you know, I think that a lot of these things are just good ideas. Like I definitely know people who work in an office where, you know, they're wearing their noise canceling headphones next to, you know, 200 other people that also are and only communicating via Slack. And I don't think it matters, you know, at that point, whether you're in the office or, or not, it's just, uh, you know, dealing with our asynchronous communication world. For sure. We'll include links in the show notes to some of the tools we've mentioned, like coffee time sounds interesting and I had not heard of it before, but yeah, it's a good idea whether you're in person or remote. So, And like we're talking here in Google Hangouts and, and uh, I use uh, Zoom a lot, which is like a similar idea, but yeah, so our team meets every day uh, in kind of a video standup where we kind of go over what we're working on. Um and, you know, that's often how I interact with uh, all kinds of people throughout the company. Yeah. So definitely I would recommend video chat if you're, if you're remote. So besides tools for being a remote employee, you host a podcast yourself, Co-Recursive. We'll include a link in the show notes for audience that are curious. As a parting note, are there any specific technologies or programming languages or frameworks that you're particularly excited about right now that, that we can also give a plug to? Yeah, so uh, I'm probably guilty of being interested in a lot of more fringe technologies. So my, my team all uh, does development in Scala, um, which is, you know, kind of a functional programming leaning JVM language. Um, 
And on my podcast, I've talked to people about Rust, which is a, a pretty exciting uh, programming language. And I'm trying to think what else, like Haskell. And uh, I, I definitely kind of lean and our team does like culturally towards uh, using concepts from functional programming and uh, using types a lot to, to build better software. Um, so I think that, you know, everybody should, uh, should explore those ideas if they haven't, if they're not familiar, like even if that means, you know, like using TypeScript instead of JavaScript or et cetera. For sure. For sure. I mean, we'll even throw links in the show notes about Scala and Rust (laughs) just to the tutorials and whatnot. But I've got, speaking of, I've got to go check them out as I really have not read a line of Rust in my life. I don't think so. (laughs) It's super interesting. Yeah. For sure. Well, I encourage our audience to go check it out. Also check out Adam's podcast, Co-Recursive. Adam, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. It was great. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.